The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we have by now thoroughly absorbed the concept of Machiavelli as a ruthless, even amoral advisor to a fictional ruler, Il Principe, or in English, the Prince. To be Machiavellian is to be, like Iago, focused on ends rather than means. Here, Prince, is how to accrue honor and popularity. Let me tell you, Prince, how to amass power. Reputation may matter more than actual facts. Cunning and deceit and violence might be necessary rather than practicing the usual virtues. What matters is not doing what is right, but doing what is effective. Machiavelli, writing in the 1500s, dedicated his book to Lorenzo de' Medici, the Duke of Urbino. The book has been used by the princedoms that Machiavelli discusses, which included some republics as well as more princely states. It's also been adopted by leaders of large democracies, totalitarian dictatorships, and everything in between. Tupac Shakur read it in prison and was so taken by it that he began calling himself Machiavelli in tribute. It would seem that when it comes to the specifics of an Italian Renaissance-era man advising an Italian Renaissance-era leader, we have seen the usefulness and universality of the advice. But what if we change the specifics? What if, instead of directing the discourse at an Italian Christian leader from Machiavelli's day, we change the nature of the prince? What if we use one of the other archetypes available to us, one firmly rooted in world culture? What if we look to Muslim empires with roots in classical antiquity and Persianate worlds from India to the Mediterranean? What if the Hebrew Bible and European medieval strands of thought are intertwined with the traditions and histories of Iran and Islam? What if our prince has a history from antiquity to the post-colonial era, a rebel, a prophet, a poet, and a nomad? Professor Hamid Dabashi of Columbia University has done just such a project, a Persian prince, to stand along with Il Principe. And the results are revelatory. He joins us today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Two things before we bring out Professor Debashi and ask him to tell us about the Persian prince. The first is a reminder to sell us, sell us, to send us your dream guest, your idea for a dream guest. Just shoot an email to History of Literature Podcast at gmail.com or head on over to historyofliterature.com and fill out the contact us form there. Tell us who it is that you would love to hear talking to your humble podcast host, Jack Wilson. We've gotten some great suggestions so far, but there's no need for us to stop at just getting one good suggestion. We're going to try to fulfill these dreams as best we can. So who would yours be? Haruki Murakami has been suggested, as have some favorite professors, some favorite authors, favorite scholars and other interesting people. We take all nominees 
seriously. This is your chance to tell us who you think would be a great guest. The second thing is the new feature we're going to begin here, which is to give you as our appetizer a poem by Emily Dickinson. I was sick recently. Maybe you can hear that in my voice. I'm feeling much better now. Thank you. But one of my approaches to dealing with a weekend bed, in addition to binge-watching Borgen, one of my coping mechanisms was to buy a book that I've always wanted to own. Helen Vendler's poem-by-poem commentary on a selection of Emily Dickinson's poetry. Dickinson is such an incredible poet. I always learn from her. She always seems to delight as well as surprise, as well as uh, engage intellectually. I wanted in my sick bed, I was flat on my back, people. You might not have noticed that, that I was out for a week because I had recorded a couple of weeks worth of shows in advance, trying to get ready for my August vacation, which is coming up. Now I have to scramble to catch up. I'll probably get sick trying to do that. Well, isn't that how life goes? Anyway, I wanted in my sick bed to be cheered up by Emily and Helen Vendler, too. A wonderful critic, although I tend to consult her commentary on a uh, after I read the poem and think my own thoughts. I think it's kind of fun to check her out. Uh, that's the sort of basis that I take in Helen Vendler. It's not gospel for me. It's not definitive or exhausting, but it's there, and it's smart, and it's welcome enough. Usually there's a lot of overlap between what one can just glean from reading the poems with open eyes and Vendler's commentary, but there's also a few nuggets, a few different takes on things. So in any case, we're going to share a few of those Dickinson poems with you in the next few weeks, and we will see how it goes. Today, we're looking at Dickinson's poem number 23, which is just three lines. I'll read the poem in its entirety. In the name of the bee, and of the butterfly, and of the breeze, amen. Look at that jewel of a poem. You can probably read that last word as amen or amen. It's up to you. I myself pronounce that word both ways, pretty much equally, 50% of the time. Amen, amen. It always sounds right, no matter which one you choose. It's, of course, a church word, the last word of a prayer or a benediction or some kind of blessing, it gives the poem that element, a religious element, if we didn't already guess it from the beginning, which has in the name of, or if we didn't guess it from the cadence, which you may have picked up on. There's a reference here. It's easy enough to see in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. By the way, In the poem, by the way, it has an exclamation mark after it. Kind of a nice little flourish. Uh, yes. Amen! Exclamation mark. It's religious. We're in the church. The poem seems to say, this is holy stuff I'm talking about here, isn't it? Amen! But of course, it's not holy stuff. It's not the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. That's been replaced by a bee and a butterfly and the breeze. That's our trinity here. Things in nature, things in the everyday world, part of the great 
mundane. But of course, and I realize I have said but of course twice here because there's a double pivot, right? We pivot to say, oh, I see, it's not religious. This is the natural world. But of course, that is holy. The natural world is holy. It's God's creation. After all, it's another way to celebrate a creator or a maker or a supreme being to, or just the universe to celebrate the beauty and joy of his or her or its creation. The buzzing, industrious bee, the sheer beauty and tribute to transformation that is a butterfly and the breeze that carries them both along and that plays on our skin too. We feel it on our arms and our cheek and rustling our hair. It's invisible, but everywhere that breeze is pleasant and yet purposeful. It's appreciated, although often overlooked, rather like God, one might say. You can take your holy ghosts and worship them in your church. I'll be out here with the breeze, worshiping in my own fashion, and amen to that. All of this conveyed in such a simple way, challenging the very premise of our relationship with God, and yet challenging the idea that this challenge is in some way a challenge too. Challenging the challenge. <laughs> The poem refutes religion and yet lives in perfect harmony with it at the same time. A tiny and yet absolutely titanic poem. Emily Dickinson, poem 23. Let's take a quick break and come back with Professor Debashi and his take on the Persian prince. We'll do that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Professor Hamid Dabashi, who is a professor of Iranian Studies and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He's the author of more than two dozen books, including The End of Two Illusions, Islam After the West, and Iran, A People Interrupted. He's here today to discuss his new book, The Persian Prince, The Rise and Resurrection of an Imperial Archetype. Professor Dabashi, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start where you do with the questions that you set forth in the prelude 
who or maybe I should say what is the Persian prince? In fact, you're absolutely correct. We better say what because it's an archetype, not a person. Mm that I have, based on extended uh, historical literary sources, constructed, I've constructed a character. The book, uh, obviously, is very much indebted to Machiavelli, and uh, Machiavelli, of course, had a specific historical people in the Medici family in mind, but I don't. I don't have any specific king or queen or anything of that sort in mind. I'm building an archetype that I believe and I propose over the last few millennia has been mm. evident and present and operative in multiple cultural settings. And half of the book is about the construction of that archetype, and the other half is about the destruction or deconstruction of that archetype into its constituent forces. So it is an archetype that I propose has been present and evident and operative in multiple cultural and historical settings, uh, the task of this book is to uh, show what it is. Mm, okay. Well, before we talk about the characteristics of the archetype, let's talk about the sources that you're looking for. Are these? Are there any historical accounts? Do these come from stories or, or poetry or scripture? Or what's fair game for you in your search for the Persian prince? Well, I kind of do a flashback. I begin with... Machiavelli's Prince. And when you read Machiavelli's Prince, you see that repeatedly or occasionally he refers to the uh, Persian Empire or Persian mm -hmm. Emperor mm -hmm. in the context of his articulation of the Prince. And if we take that reference uh, from the time of Machiavelli, you see that despite its significance for having produced, as Ernst Cassirer, the German philosopher, put it, uh, not an immoral character, but an amoral character. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, the, that it has severed the idea of political authority from any moral consideration. Despite that revolutionary aspect of Machiavelli's work, it is rooted in a sustained course of medieval mirrors for princes throughout the uh, European history that ultimately comes to Machiavelli. And if we trace all of these things back, ultimately comes to one seminal text, which is Xenophon's Cyropedia. Mm. Xenophon was a contemporary of Plato. They were both students of Socrates. And Xenophon was also a soldier and participated in battles against their contemporary, the Persians. And then he wrote this absolutely magnificent book, historically extremely important book called Cyropedia, which is a fictional account of Cyrus the Great. And it is less historical sort of assessment of who Cyrus was, rather than the construction of a political figure as a leader, as a leader of an empire, as an emperor. And Cyropedia remains a major source of political thinking throughout European and even American history. Thomas Jefferson had a copy of it, and his copy is in the Library of Congress, on the margin of which he recommends that his son read this book. So mm. one of the earliest sources that I document is, of course, Xenophon's Cyropedia. But then around the time of classical antiquity, we have other sources, such as Aeschylus' Persian, or even in some references in Plato, 
that the uh, nature and disposition and character and function of a Persian prince, now I begin to call it, are considered, examined, and studied. So that one source of this construction of this archetype is classical antiquity. Mm. But I don't remain limited in that. I move to Hebrew Bible because throughout the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, we have multiple references to the figure of the Persian prince or the Persian emperor, particularly in the book of Esther. So I do a very close reading of the book of Esther and the character of Ahuaceros, as one, again, literary, uh, biblical, perhaps more accurately, and historical reference to the character of the Persian prince. Mm. So that's a second kind of a category from classical antiquity to uh, Hebrew Bible. But I have another sort of take, which comes from the East, and this comes from India. And that has to do with, initially, Pahlavi. Pahlavi was Middle Persian, the language of the Sasanid Empire from 226 to 650. During the time of Anushiravan, the Sasanid Empire, there is a Pahlavi translation of a Sanskrit origin of a book called Panchatantra. And Pahlavi translation is, combines Panchatantra in Sanskrit and then some aspects of Mahabharata. That text reaches a very crucial figure in early Islamic intellectual history. His name is Ibn Mughaffa, who translates it from Pahlavi into Arabic and calls it Kilila wa Dimna. And that Kilila wa Dimna that he composes in Arabic becomes seminal and you know, is translated into Latin and Hebrew and, and all of that. What happens in the course of this multiple translations from Sanskrit into Pahlavi, into Arabic, into Persian, and into multiple European languages, the character of the prince now uh, beginning its gestation in an Indian context and Islamic context, etc., begins to be fused with Arabic and Persian sources to consolidate the figure of the Persian prince, but this time from Indian sources. Mm. So that's a three categories, classical antiquity, Hebrew Bible, and Indian sources. But then we have pre-Islamic Iranian sources, such as Khudaynameh, that the same Ibn Mughaffa translates into Arabic and ultimately reaches the crucial text of Ferdowsi's Shahnameh, the Book of Kings. So briefly, I identify four major provenances classical antiquity, Hebrew Bible, Indian sources, and pre-Islamic Iranian sources that are consolidated in Ferdowsi's Shahnameh in the 11th century as the multiple sources of this archetype that I'm constructing. So as a result, despite the fact that I call it Persian, and the sources call it Persian, beginning with Cyropedia and the Hebrew Bible, the actual sources of the idea are entirely multicultural and from various sources, from Greek to Indian to Hebrew and Iranian. Mm. That's sort of briefly what I can say, but the details of it are obviously in the book. Right, right. So what characters do these various manifestations of the Persian prince have in common? How do you know it when you see it? I mean, given that it, it ranges across 
nationalities or it's not really tied to any particular language or even necessarily a religion. What does distinguish the Persian prince in your mind? Excellent question. It's, it's actually a paradox that the concept is trying to hold. One is how to hold an empire together. What are the parameters of the empire? And this is an imperial archetype, as I say, as mm-hmm. uh, in the title, it is not a republic the way we have it in Plato's Republic, mm-hmm. or it is not a city-state the way we have it in Machiavelli, but it is an empire. And it's also crucial to remember that for generations, Xenophon's Cyropedia was far more important in European political history than Plato's Republic. It is recently, really after the French Revolution and Industrial Revolution, that Plato's Republic begins to become more important. Mm. Historically, figures like Alexander and Napoleon and Thomas Jefferson, etc., they were looking at uh, Xenophon's Cyropedia more closely than they did at, on Plato. So there are two issues. One is how to hold an empire together that in some of the Persian and Arabic sources become very detailed from spying agencies to the how to feed the, the army and how to collect taxes and those sorts of elements. But also at the root of it is the question of justice, how to maintain justice in these empires. So these two paradoxical forces, how to maintain order, how to run an empire, how to sustain the political apparatus of an empire is one factor. And then on the opposite direction, how at the same time to be just and why justice is the foundation of holding of an empire together. These two components, both definitive and yet paradoxical, define the archetype. Mm. And does the Persian prince come across in a particular way as a, a wise and just ruler, or, or are there times where the Persian prince is sort of a negative example of leadership and tyrannical or, or defeated or anything like that? Excellent. Again, excellent question. You see, the, th- the way that I kind of dovetail this into literary sources, such as Sadi or Hafez, you know, classical Persian uh, poets, or Shahnameh, uh, is that most of the time poets keep warning the the emperor mm. to be just and learn from the previous monarchs who have failed to attend to the needs of their uh, subjects. Right, and that that sounds very much like Machiavelli. Exactly. I mean, this is how what I propose. Machiavelli's it, it is a mirror for princes. And the way we usually understand Machiavelli, oh, he's immoral and he's uh, sort of manipulating, he just wants to keep power, you know, is not is partially true, but as Ernst Cassirer says, it is not uh, immoral, it is amoral. He just wants to suspend the question of morality, not that he wants to go against him. His interest is how to sustain the city-state, how to remain in power. So the same is in Persian poetic and literary sources that are extensively discussed in the book, that you cannot possibly sustain an empire without paying close attention to justice. Mm -hmm. And justice begins with the building block of an empire, namely impoverished peasantry and, and so forth. So that becomes the nucleus of how to sustain the empire, not the entire apparatus of political administration is one thing which some theorists, like Nizam al-Mulk, for example, go into detail. But at the same time, 
there is an element of justice, which is consideration of the weakest elements in the composition of the empire, which is at work. Mm. So were the creators of the Persian prince similar to Machiavelli in that they were they had politics in mind and they had they had these kinds of advice giving, you know, that that they were writing for leaders or writing for a broader public, but had in mind, well, let's hold our leaders to a certain kind of standard and let's advise them into what's what's going to be beneficial for the people. Or are those are there other instances of the Persian prince, but you've just focused on the ones that have had this kind of agenda in putting forward the yeah, Persian well, prince? Yeah, well, again, we're not talking about just one text like Machiavelli's prince. We're talking myriads and, and mm. hundreds of texts. Mm-hmm. But I give you examples. If you look at Ghazali's Nasihatul Muluk, Advice to the King, it is a combination of both moral and political. It is a combination of how to sustain an empire, and it is a specific. It was written for a Saljuk emperor, and it was written in Persian, despite the fact that most of his writings uh, are in Arabic. So he targets one specific Saljuk emperor, and he writes it to him and says, do if you want to sustain your power, this is what you do. And in saying so, he he traverses into pre-Islamic Iranian history. He talks about morality. He talks about politics. And he talks some aspect of the political apparatus of the empire. But if we go to another text, Siyasad Nami of Nizamul Mulk, almost his uh, contemporary, he is less concerned about the morality or the justice and far more concerned about the administrative apparatus of the empire. He himself was an uh, administrator, a vizier, in, this, uh, in the Sajjur uh, period. A third example, in fact, is more exciting, which is, is called Qam Uslame by uh, a prince who writes it for his son as an advice, what to mm. do in order to, when you come to, uh, which of course never materializes, the son never becomes a prince. But that is that text is uh, extremely important for us to see Yes, aspects of it have to do with justice and administration of a of an empire, but it also tells him, how, gives him sexual advice about how to behave towards uh, in, in terms of his sexuality. So it is more into a sort of a construction of a character, how to be a proper person, how to eat, how to take a bath, how to uh, have a knowledge of some poetry or some philosophy. So it is more construction of a character rather than just a specifically political apparatus. You open the category up and you see in each one of these periods, for example, in the 16th, 17th century, it becomes a satirical, even in satire, like the, the famous poet Obed Zakani becomes satirical. He's not very happy with the political apparatus of his time, so he begins to mimic the writing of a mirror for princes, but in jest, in ridicule. Uh, so it has multiple aspects. It's not just one text, it's myriads of texts. Mm. And let's make sure that we've ruled out what I'm going to call the Hollywood spoof version of Persian Prince. And this might serve as a a good way to sort of make sure that people don't have the wrong thing in mind as they're listening to this conversation. You describe them as old-fashioned Orientalist cream puffs uh, that still appear in North America and Western Europe. So what exactly are you talking about in that kind of prince? And how does that... Yeah, yeah. I'm happy that you 
read the book first. Yeah. These days that everybody reads Facebook.book uh, is, is a blessing. <laughs> and second, as you can tell, I use the example of the Prince of Persia as a game and then a Hollywood movie and such uh, by way of teasing my readers into reading me that today when you hear Persian Prince or Prince of Persia, this is the first thing that you remember. What is that? Yeah. So I want to begin with the generation of that and then, you know, take, for example, an American reader to Thomas Jefferson, the founding figures of American democracy, and ask them, for example, the glorious text of Thomas Jefferson notes on the state of Virginia is influenced by this idea of justice and formation of a state, because I've always, I've taught uh, that that text at Columbia for years, notes on the state of Virginia, said this is not just Virginia. This is Thomas Jefferson's writing of a Plato's Republic for the future that he has in mind. But he, he is writing that book when he has just read Cyropedia by Xenophon. Hmm. So it just goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. But the ridiculous itself is a caricaturish kind of a reference to the significance of these kind of imagination and, and thinking in the formation of multiple civilizations. Right. And you want to make sure that in reading your book that we're thinking of this in the right historical terms, that this was... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't want it to be read, Jack, as a kind of an antiquarian thing, because it is not antiquarian. The, this, the, next, the second part of the book is entirely about contemporary issues and the the construction of the idea of the uh, Persian prince in its to, into its constituent forces. But also for my European readers and American readers, for them to feel a sense of what Freud calls uncanny, that what I'm saying kind of sounds familiar to them, but is not entirely familiar. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I'm talking about classical antiquity, I'm straight, you know, in the context of European history. When I talk about Hebrew Bible, obviously I'm in the Jewish and, and uh, Christian context. The same is with, uh, with the Indian context and Islamic and Arabic context. So there is a way for erudite and educated and cultivated American reader to pick it up and to read it. My only concern is that the prince is not gendered. It's very important mm. for the listener to know right. that in Persian, we don't have gender-specific pronoun. U means he, she, it. So is one of the really remarkable aspects of Persian language. So prince, I, I mean, right, I've written this book in, in English, so I have to say prince. But it doesn't mean the prince is not princess. So why, what about princess? I discussed in some details the question of gender in the formation of this. So it is not, and I say Persian prince is not a person, is a persona. And as a result, it can be anything. It's not just a question of male or female. Gender does not matter. It's not the issue. The issue is the political parameters of the construction of the archetype. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with more about the Persian prince, including uh, how the prince appears and develops over time. Okay, we are back. So I'd like to try to track the prince over time, and I know you offer a few different possibilities in your book. We could go through the historical periods. Maybe that would make the most sense. And then as we do that, maybe we could talk about how the prince is changing as we see him, in, or I shouldn't say him, as we see the prince in these different time periods. 
<laughs> that that sounds fine, but I laugh because you see how English language, because we are speaking English, you see how it forces you to pick. I mean, fortunately, right now we're trying to be uh, gender neutral in our conversations and and writing, and rightly so. I know. When I read that in your book, it made me think. You know, the the best way to put this to an English speaker, I think, is for someone who has tried to learn a Romance language. And if you've learned Spanish or Italian or anything like that, and you go through this where you have to choose what every, or you have to learn what every object is, you know, is a pencil, is a book, like, does it take a male or a female pronoun? And you end up thinking, exactly. well, this is so ridiculous. Why do I have to learn all of this? And it, it, it's, it, 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 it's more than ridiculous. It's psychotic that you yeah. have to decide the gender right. of a pencil. Right. And it, <laughs> it's so much extra effort. And then you really lose something that you can't refer to, you know, something without yeah. having to make that decision or, or follow that decision. And it, in reading what you were writing about Persian, it made me think, well, wouldn't it be nice if we just didn't have to be locked into this? We would solve so much of the problems we're facing today to just yeah. be able to be yeah. fluid with it. And then writers could make it clear if they feel the need to do so, but otherwise they have the freedom just not to take a position on that. Precisely. Precisely. I mean, I I just refer to it simply for your listeners not to confuse prince, why is it not a princess? Because uh, Persian prince is an archetype, is not a person, is a persona. But uh, I have a brief discussion of what happens in the language, particularly in the poetry of that language, mm. when you can't decide if the beloved is a male or a female or anything in between. I mean, I don't want to sound I'm glorifying Persian language, which is my mother tongue, uh, but there is something happening in this language. Imagine when you are you have a, a poem in you know a loving poem mm-hmm. uh, in praise of the person that you love. But you, you can't, you shouldn't, you can't, uh, you know, choose him, her, it, nothing. It just, it just, it is. And yeah. that creates all kinds of exciting, wonderful uh, resonances in the question of love and affection and so forth. That today in our society, when we are trying to be understanding of multiple different kinds of gender formations mm-hmm. is, uh, is really very good. Yeah. Or when we have in song lyric, like in popular songs, we'll have this convention where a songwriter will write a song and maybe it'll be a, a man who's writing about a, a love for a young woman. Yeah. Uh, and then a woman will cover the song and she'll have to switch it to be about a man or she'll have to, exactly. you know, and, and it becomes this thing where you're, you're, if we didn't have that, you could just sing. Exactly. You could sing the words exactly. as they were written and as they were exactly. meant, and, and it could cover every kind of love, and we could all be participating yeah. the, in that. There was a time that we thought, in multiple languages, that when the beloved was no longer uh, female, we thought it was, wow, it's revolutionary. But it is not. More revolutionary is if you don't know, you don't have to decide mm. on the gender. The mm-hmm. gender, what is paramount in the formation of the poetic diction, is really affection of love. It could be male to a male, or female to a female, or a, a fusion of all of these things. Mm-hmm. That now, in the age of LGBTQT sort of consciousness, you realize how within a specific societies that now have been exoticized, orientalized, and kind of pushed back into history, there were some sensibilities to issues that then in the course of European modernity, we lost. 
and we had to decide. It is a male, sort of this heteronormativity that has been established. I mean, again, that's not exactly my project in this book. Mm -hmm. It has been part of my concern uh, other places. But when I wanted my editor, an amazing, amazing uh, editor, uh, Kate Wall at uh, Stanford, uh, and also some of the blind reviewers, that to make sure that the text is read in a proper gender consciousness that prepares the way that I want to bring the, the construction of this character in our contemporary period. Right. Okay, so let's get back to uh, the prince. And as we look through history, how much have we covered so far in the either archetypal or classical period? Yeah, yeah you're referring to the chronology I give at the end. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how excited I am. You must be the first. Uh, uh, <laughs> not my colleague was actually uh, out of the blue. I've read actually my book, and these days is a luxury. <laughs> Uh, the thing is, my, uh, first of all, the book is basically divided into two sort of construction of the uh, of the archetype mm. and then its uh, resurrection. Okay. But in the construction, the, what we have been discussing, namely its Greek, the, the, the classical antiquity, Hebrew sources, Indian sources, and so forth, is really when the uh, archetype is being built historically. Mm. Then I have a sort of part of the book in which I go through multiple empires. But I'm not particularly interested in the empire, but in the literary text and historical text and historical narratives when the character begins to pop up and become the cornerstone uh, of our understanding of the political culture of that period. But then things come to a crescendo of change Mm. in what I call the encounter with European colonialism, when the character of the archetype, let's say the three empires of the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals, Mughals in India, Safavids in Iran, and the Ottomans in the Mediterranean area, there the character begins eventually to deconstruct into its constituent forces. This is where things become exciting Mm. because now we begin to realize that what had been accumulating or coagulating around the concept of the Persian prince is actually uh, multiple persona. There is a poet, there is a prophet, there is a rebel, and ultimately there is a nomad. So there are four uh, sub-archetypes I uh, articulate. Mm. A prophet, a prophet, for example, I have Zaratustra in mind, Zoroaster in mind, a poet who was also a poet, and also a rebel, somebody who revolts against the status quo. All of these kings, all of these princes have start as a rebel before they become a prince. But then ultimately, given what, as I come closer to our contemporary life, where we live, when cultures and civilizations and countries and climes have become porous. And as I bring the character of the Persian prince to the age of climate change, and we, I'm, I'm talking to you from New York, we just did last week, we had a Armageddon because of these fires in Canada. Uh, smoke came to New York. New York was the most polluted city on planet Earth. I mean, uh, my wife was saying jokingly, we should build a wall uh, between the yeah. U.S. and Canada. Yeah, there's it would no have to wall. be very high. <laughs> yeah, very I mean, high there's one. no wall. 
<laughs> As you know, it's because of the meteorological changes. There was something happening in the, in the air that brought this to New York. Mm. The point is that if this archetype is to remain relevant for us and for us to read it and learn from it in terms of political cultures of multiple contexts, and not only an antiquarian, oh, okay, I've read Machiavelli's Prince, now I'm reading a Persian Prince. For this not to degenerate in a kind of antiquarian interest, then we have to bring it forth to our contemporary context in which we are born and raised in certain culture, then come to intellectual, moral, imaginative fruition in some other context. Then how is the figure of the political authority? How are we reading say, the story of Esther. I, I teach a course on Game of Thrones. You, you may not know, but you might be interested. But in it, I read Book of Esther, and I say, I don't read it the way usually it has been read, that, oh, there was this Esther and Mordechai and Haman, and they were uh, the Persians were uh, trying to plot against the Jews. This is not how I read it. There were two families, just like, you know, Starks and Lannisters. One was plotting that against the the other, and it didn't succeed. And Esther is really a Persian queen. And then I go through operas, and I go through paintings, and I go uh, how Vashti, for example, is now resurrected by many Jewish feminists as a character that they admire more than Esther. So this, as a result, does not remain limited in the uh, period of its gestation, that comes forward, for example, a 17th century Jewish Persian poet, Shirazi was his name, contemporary of Hafez, who recasts the Pentateuch in a way and writes in Judeo-Persian that it is as if it was written as a Shahnameh, as a book of kings, as an epic. So it allows me to bring the category forward into our contemporary time as you recall in the chronology, I'm not looking at it just to see that, to use the accurate words that I have used. In the in the chronology towards the end of the book, yes, there is a period of archetypal formations that the character is built, and I call it uh, archetypal. And then ar- after archetypal comes classical. So archetypal is when the archetype is being formed, and then classical period that goes through Greco-Persian wars and so forth. And then comes down to the historical period, and after historical becomes contemporary. These are sort of, I made these things up in order to facilitate, as I say early in that chronology, to facilitate my reader's understanding of how the archetype works. But if you look at the chronology, it's a very unusual chronology. It's not just Islamic history or Iranian history Mm -hmm. or limited European history. It brings them all together by way of trying to understand the way this archetype works. What happened during colonialism? I mean, is it is it as simple as saying that basically the Persian prince no longer had an empire and there was not a need to have this imperial archetype, and instead that's where you start to see the character or the archetype appear in ways that where they would have an empire, perhaps, but of a more of a metaphoric type, or uh, they'd be a, a poet or a, a leader of, of something that was not an empire. Jack, my, my compliments, you're a very good reader. I wish I could put you in my pocket and take you with me. Uh, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. First of all, there is what I call a shadow empire. That is, the, there is mm. no empire after the collapse of the 
Ottomans and collapse of the Safavids, etc. I mean, the Qajar period in Iran, you have a memory of empire, but you really, after the uh, Persian-Russian wars and the loss of uh, significant territories, there is no empire. And the same is when the British go to India and the collapse of the Mughal Empire. There is no empire. However, there is a shadow of the empire. There is a mm-hmm. memory of empire mm-hmm. that continues to inform form the political culture in the post-colonial shape of the formation of the nation states. Now we have Turkey here and Iran there and India there and Pakistan there. These are all post-colonial nation states that into which context then the the archetype of Persian prince begins to deconstruct into its constituent forces. Thus, the rise and significance of poets in all of these mm. uh, contexts, post-colonial contexts, or the significance of a prophetic voice that begins to speak. And most of the time, the poets are the prophetic voice. But also rebels, all these uh, you know, anti-colonial and revolutionary mobilizations that happen in multiple contexts. But the result of them are what I call nomadic subjects that are no longer limited anywhere. Nobody remains where they are born. They just move. Statistically, according to UN, 320 million human beings roam around the globe in search of job. This is, this is the reality of where we live. So I ultimately use the example of a sinking boat inside the, in the Mediterranean Sea with people running away from one refugee condition to another refugee condition as the site of our understanding the nature of our political culture. That artificial walls no longer mean uh, artificial uh, formations of uh, fictional frontiers. This is United States, that's Mexico, and this is Canada. Both by force of human migration, you know, look at the southern borders of the United States, or by catastrophic climate changes, such as these fires and smokes and uh, pollution, no longer allows for formations of these nations to be limited. We are, they are trying. Mm-hmm. I always say, for example, in the European context, they need the labor because the, the, the population is aging. The population is aging because of the drop in infant mortality rate and increase in life expectancy. So when that happens, population ages. They need labor, but they don't like the labor. That comes all sorts of xenophobic uh, tendencies that we have received in multiple cultures. In that context, then how does the figure that I have constructed of the Persian prince work both in the region, but in the region, as you see, is really Mediterranean, Indian subcontinent. It is not limited to any particular culture. I call it Persian because I am constructing an archetype based on primary sources that they constitute this character of Persian. Mm. But it, it has become globalized and has become a has become a, uh, I have a colleague <laughs> that I sent a book to, a copy of this book, a very dear colleague who used to be my student. And she said that my son saw it and said, what is this book about? She's an Iranian married uh, to, to an Iran. She said, this, is, this book is about you, about Persian prince. <laughs> so uh, it is very contemporary. What I would like to convey to your listeners, it, they, when they read it, they may not agree with my one interpretation or another, but they will be in the domain of our contemporary life. But it is not made out of thin air. It is based on solid historical evidence.
Right. Let me roll this out and see what you think. The analogy that came to mind as I was going through this and in just talking to you and trying to think about other examples of this occurring, the analogy that came to mind was the expression we used to often hear uh, in reference to the Kennedys, and they would say, well, that's America's royalty. And it was almost like America didn't have royals and it didn't have aristocrats formally, but there was something in the Kennedys that reflected a sort of memory of the royals or a, a relationship, Excellent. you know, and it was the glamour and the wealth and the hereditary aspect and this sort of sprawling family. And we could recognize in them, oh, this is kind of what it was like to have royals. And there's still a, a fascination with them and a, a hunger for them by some people. And it's sort of like a, uh, the idea of royals didn't really disappear they just no longer were, you know, formalized and validated and, and present all the time. And it almost sounds like what you're talking about with the Persian prince is, even though you might look and say, well, the Persian princes that we saw in antiquity and, you know, for the centuries after, even though that is no longer there, we still see a kind of relationship that our cultural psyche has with this Persian prince. And so we see manifestations of it taking other forms and and having other things to do and, and things to preside over and different objectives to have and so forth. But we still carry that with us. Is that kind of on the right track? Absolutely correct. And it's excellent example that you're providing. And what I refer to in my book to Thomas Jefferson reading Cyropedia, it is not speculative. It is factual. I mean, mm -hmm. The listeners can just walk into the Library of Congress in D.C., where I have given lectures multiple times, and uh, they can see Thomas Jefferson's copy of Cyropedia. So there is an awareness of the European and medieval and the classical antiquity and the biblical. All of this are obviously in the minds of the founding fathers of United States when they're writing. I mean, I was just happened to be watching uh, Frank Copra's State of the Union with, with uh, Spencer Tracy last mm. night. Mm -hmm. And there is a scene that Spencer Tracy is, is running for, uh, for the president or considering running for president. He's standing in front of the White House and there's another gentleman uh, next to him. And Spencer Tracy turns to him and says, it needs painting. And the guy says, are you kidding me? This is the most amazing historical building ever. And uh, Spencer Tracy goes into a magnificent monologue. Oh, yes, this is Moses. This is Christ. This is Plato. This is Aristotle. This is uh, St. Augustine. This is this and that. But it still needs a goddamn painting. <laughs> so it is a particular fusion of a remembrance of a collective memory of uh, an archetypal figure going back to your question about uh, the Kennedys, but recast in a democratic context. Mm. Obviously, the Kennedys are not emperors, are not princes, are not, there's no a dynasty, but isn't there a dynasty? Namely, if you look at the uh, history of especially the 50s and 60s, when the country during the civil rights movement, the uh, anti-war demonstrations, that the, the country and the consciousness is very vulnerable, that suddenly there is this, need for an archetypal figure that manifests itself. Especially you can see the, the trauma of the assassination of President Kennedy. Why was it so traumatic? 
rather than, well, political assassinations have happened all over the history. Why is this, part- I mean, in my judgment, the trauma of Kennedy assassination is even worse than assassination of Abraham Lincoln in the, in the immediacy of it. Why was it so vulnerable and traumatic? Mm-hmm. Unless, w- without doing exactly what you just said, that there is something about this family, the famous reference to Camelot, that indicates their presence in a collective consciousness of a nation beyond their political significance. Mm. Well, I just love the idea. I love the project. I love learning more about it because I love these ideas where we have these literary and cultural archetypes of, you know, a, a pirate or a detective or something, and then tracing it back and seeing where it comes from and what it means to us. And it's it's as much about learning about history and historical figures as it is about learning about this kind of longing that we have or this exactly. uh, way that these human needs have been filled by artists and other cultural onlookers and the way that it resonates with us, it can be very hard to unpack. But that's why we have books like yours, which I thank you for. I thank you. Thanks for <laughs> inviting me. I looked at your website. You have an amazing uh, show. I'm happy and, and honored to be part of it. And what I will just promise you readers that they when they read it, this book is not an interest in antiquarianism. Oh, they will read about Persian. They, they will see resonance of this, as, as you just did about the Kennedys, of our own contemporary history as it unfolds in front of us. Mm. Hamid Dabashi, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. My pleasure, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Emily Dickinson for her lovely poem number 23. And of course, my thanks to Professor Hamid Dabashi. Do check out his book, The Persian Prince, The Rise and Resurrection of an Imperial Archetype. We'll be back soon with an episode on comics, the Cambridge Companion to those with the expert and editor of that book. And coming down the pike is an episode on the Carrie Bradshaw of her day. Did you think Sex in the City began in the 1990s? Well, we have a Jazz Age forerunner we'd like you to meet. Also, there's a new book on Homer and his Iliad, and we'll be talking to the author of that book soon, along with a look at Borges and the ultimate nature of reality. Put on your metaphysical caps for that one. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.